Hello and welcome to this episode of the Grazia Life Advice Podcast. I'm Rhiannon Evans and this time we're with the award-winning author of Really Good Actually. Hi, I'm Monica Heisey. I'm an author and screenwriter and I'm this week's guest on the Grazia Life Advice Podcast. We chat about writing on Ship's Creek and my new favourite love language, potatoes. You know, there wasn't really anything to be done. You know, the relationship was was really over and needed to be over. And it was devastating and would be for some time. But these potatoes were what she could offer in that moment. And like, obviously, a listening ear and a lot of great jokes. Monica reminds us to become more comfortable with how we look in real life. When have you ever left a party and been like, oh, the host of that party was looking bloated? (laughs) No one thinks like that. If you think like that, you're a complete jerk. And there was some really original advice served up in this episode. Okay, this has been my most life-changing piece of advice, personally, and I came up with it, which I can't believe. Perfect. Maybe I didn't. Did I? It feels like it just came to me (laughs) one day. Apologies if I've stolen it from someone. All of that, plus being lost in an Italian port, and even some tips from a book Monica hasn't actually read. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Monica. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Good, good. You're looking amazing. I love your hair. I, and we've oh made God. you push it out the way for the microphone, but it looks so good, I just had to say. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. We're not here to talk about your hair, although it is great. Go on Monica's Instagram and check it out. But uh, <laughs> we're not here to talk about your hair. We're here to talk about your best pieces of life advice and your new novel. Now, um, part of my job, and one of my best bits of my job is I get to read books before they came out. So I got to read your book. It's called Really Good Actually. It's your second book, but first novel. And now I've talked enough about it. I want you to tell me what it's about. Um, Really Good Actually is about a woman called Maggie who got married at 26 and finds herself kind of unexpectedly getting divorced at 28. And the novel is set during the first year post-divorce or post-separation, I should say, during which she's kind of figuring out how to be alone for the first time really in her adult life. Um, Her husband was her kind of university sweetheart. Um, And she handles it worse than I think most people people alive (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah she goes through some stuff but you know understandable you take her you take us on Maggie's journey really well I feel and you know you don't feel like it's out there you know you you kind of understand where she's coming from all the time because you feel those things too and also I should say having read some of your writing fans of your writing your journalistic writing will recognize some things like the spin class and there are elements of your own life in the book also like are there Yeah, I definitely, um, so I I got divorced at a young age myself, um, and kind of as soon as it was happening, I thought that I wanted to write about it, and also, almost as soon as I realized I wanted to write about it, I realized I didn't want to write a memoir or, you know, tell my story specifically. I thought I should give myself and my partner some time to kind of process this um, alone and to figure out how I feel about it, and then to figure out what ultimately I wanted to write, um, which became the novel. Um, And it was really freeing to kind of take an emotional experience as a starting point. Mm -hmm. So to feel very grounded in in experience and to have kind of the authority on the subject, but also to be able to be free to kind of fictionalize and, 
you know, take things that had happened to other people or think about something I had felt and find a different place to set that or uh, a character to have a conversation with to illustrate those feelings, you know. In a lot of ways, I think I made Maggie's experience worse <laughs> than my own. I really put her kind of yeah. through the ringer um, because she was such a – she's so intense mm -hmm. and it was such a useful uh, figurehead, I think, to put through – the paces of, of, um, of some of my emotional experiences and then some invented ones. Yeah. And what I loved about it is if fans of your work will know you kind of, you know, a lot of the stuff that you talk about and the way you talk about it is, fu you know, funny, humorous, but then all of a sudden it kind of goes deep and you're like, oh God, I feel <laughs> that. I feel that. And it's that real mix, which I absolutely loved. Would you say that's something you were going for? Yeah, it was, <clears throat> I think one of the reasons that I started writing the novel as well is that when I was going through my own divorce, I was quite desperate to read something that treated heartbreak with a light hand, mm -hmm. something that was acknowledged that it was big and serious, but also that it was kind of this ridiculous thing where you're, you know, not taking care of yourself or crying in the middle of the day or whatever, these kind of big, slightly dramatic reactions that are both justified and ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, so I kind of wanted to to set most of the book like in the immediacy of those both justified and ridiculous feelings. Yeah, it's such a good book. And fans of people like Dolly Alderton and because I know you worked on everything kind of about love, but fans of that kind of writing, that's really relatable. And you're nodding your head the whole way through. People are going to love this <laughs> book. Um, they may also know some of your work through watching the comedy Shit's Creek, which you you worked on. Right. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I I was in the I was a st in the writing room um, for seasons three and four of the show. Yeah, amazing, and that show, like, is such a huge success now, isn't it? Like, the, it was the lockdown show, and and everybody loves yeah. that show. It's amazing because I think when I first started writing on season three, it was kind of this little Canadian comedy, and people hadn't really heard about it. And then by season four, which was my last season in the room, it was really starting to pick up speed, I guess. Mm. Um, you know, people would ask what you were, what you were writing on and know what I was talking about. And then after I was gone really was when it really picked up, um, and seasons five and six, I think just really yeah. captured something for people. Yeah, absolutely. And you are Canadian yourself, aren't you? And you, but you're based yeah. here in the UK. Yeah. I've lived in the UK on and off really since 2010. Yeah. Great. Well, we're happy you're here. So I love reading your <laughs> stuff. So I want to get on to your piece of advice. As soon as I got your piece of advice, I was like, this is going to be brilliant. So let's kick off your first piece of advice. Um, tell me what that is. Yeah, I feel like I should have thought about ordering these better <laughs> because I going in with my biggest, best piece of advice yeah. I've ever gotten, um, which is that almost nothing is personal. Okay. Um, I, I stole it really from a the, the book, The Four Agreements, which I've never even read, but um, I, a friend had it at her house and I, the four agreements are very conveniently listed on the back of the book. Good. And one of them is take nothing personally. Um, and I find that really useful. Mm. Have you been able to apply? I mean, it's a great thing. I'd love, you know, a lot of people say it to, to us on this show and I'd love to be able to do it, but it's really hard. Do you find you can do it all the time? Oh, no, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. I think it's more about, I think that's why for me, it's it's less about taking nothing personally and just remembering that almost nothing is personal okay. because there are lots of things that feel very personal mm -hmm. and it's okay for them to feel personal. 
but keeping one eye on the fact that it's probably not personal kind of gives you the space to feel how you feel, which is, you know, put out or hurt or disappointed or let down or angry or whatever it is, and also give a little bit of space to the other person for the possible to hold the possibility that maybe this has nothing to do with you. Right. Yeah. Um, but then I always worry that this advice maybe just leads people to act like sociopaths. <laughs> like, do you know what yeah. I mean? If it's like, oh, nothing's personal. They're upset with me for their own reason. Yeah. It's like, maybe you did something annoying. Maybe you did something frustrating. Right. Um, so I try, I try to think it also, while we're also holding space for it to maybe not be personal, to, to not totally shirk my responsibility as a human in the world interacting with other human beings. Sure. And <laughs> how are you feeling about that? I mean, obviously, you know, you're talking in the context of close relationships, but, you know, you're about to go out there with your first novel, you know, personal questions, people judging something that you've worked so hard on. How are you feeling about rolling out this book? I feel all right, you know. I think this is really useful advice in that context particularly. Um, I am not that stressed about reviews, good or bad, because those are so particularly like reader reviews, like critical reviews. Obviously, those are people who are engaging with your work and deciding whether or not you successfully achieved the thing that you tried to do. And that can be quite stressful. But something like Goodreads or just like user comments, reader comments, whatever, that really is about someone's experience with your work and has kind of nothing to do with you anymore um, and everything to do with what they brought to the reading experience and what they were looking for from a reading experience. You know, they're the kinds of books they like to read and the kind of experience they want from a book. Um, So it feels pretty easy for me to let those kind of roll off because they are just one person's not even opinion of the work or the merit of the work. Mm. It's just like one person's description of their experience encountering the work, which is kind of fine. Yeah, I totally get that. And I I think especially with your book, like, obviously, as you say, it is about Maggie going through this divorce. But, you know, you don't, it's not necessarily about that all of the time, is it? Like, I love the relationships with the friends and how that played out and how sometimes your friends just can't do it for you anymore. And, you know, like, there's a lot (laughs) in there for, for everyone of every age, no matter what you've gone through. No, I hope so. Right. I don't want to rush on, but I do want to know what this piece of advice is about. Okay. Your second piece of advice, Monica, explain to us. So my second piece of advice is you speak less Italian than you think you do. Yes. Um, and I suppose the the more ge- – that's a very specific to me piece of advice. But I think the general takeaway is to not overestimate your capabilities based on – One success or a small success. Okay. So I have long considered myself to speak a small amount of Italian. I worked in Italy teaching English as a teenager in the summer and then um, have been back a little bit just on my own as an adult. I recently went back to see friends I hadn't seen who were from Canada who I hadn't seen since Mm pre-pandemic. And we were all kind of like meeting up in Ischia. Um, And to get there, I had to, you know, take a plane and then a bus to the port and then find a boat and then take a boat. And I got lost in the port. And it was my first time encountering, uh, it was like an empty, abandoned cruise port. They had dropped me in the wrong place. (laughs) And I had... uh, only realized there in quite an emergency way that I'd only ever really spoken Italian to people who had uh, like 
money on the line for <laughs> appearing to understand me, like servers at restaurants, people at hotels, people whose job it was to humor the idiot from abroad um, who can say like four words. <laughs> so trying to express my situation, I, you know, I'm looking for this particular port yeah. and I'm trying to get to Ischia. It was, it was a total disaster. Um, and I just really, it was like, your misread of your own capabilities kind of washes over you so instantly. Like I opened my mouth to speak to this custodian who was working in this abandoned port and he just looked at me like, you're a moron. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> you're right. What did you do? How did you get out? I just uh, wandered around the port, leaving increasingly deranged voice notes for the other friends um, and I did make it. They were kind of taking bets on whether or not I would make it to the ferry on time. Okay. Um, and I did get there, but it was really touch and go, um, just getting increasingly kind of like pink and sunburned <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a Naples parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there because, you know, we try and be sensitive. And so you always, when you travel, you try and not be that English person or that English speaking person. You try and speak the language and then... When they just look at you and then answer in English, that's when you know. That's when you know you failed. It's very humbling. <laughs> and I think it's good to be humbled like that because North Americans and I think English speakers in general are so like used to the world bending to them. And it's like, okay, they're going to bend to you here, but they're also going to make you feel like a fool. Yes. <laughs> and I think that's fine. <laughs> Because they speak like three languages, four languages, and we just speak our stupid one language. Yeah, we're terrible people. We deserve what's <laughs> coming to us. We deserve to be lost in ports. <laughs> I like the advice because it's kind of this anti-girl boss advice. And I like the idea that sometimes actually you don't know what you're doing and you have to be humbled by that. Yeah, know your limit. Yeah. And that's okay. <laughs> Accept it. And your limit is your Italian. Okay, great. <laughs> Right, your third piece of advice I think is very practical and I'm into it because everyone has their hangover theory. Tell me yours. What cures a hangover? So mine is to have a shower, preferably a cold shower, mm. and then get back into bed. Okay. So you know the period after a big night out where you wake up kind of too early mm. and you just kind of roll, writhe around in bed yeah. and sort of feel like crap? And that's when the brain can get going as well. You can start getting sort of worried and getting anxiety and stuff. Don't engage with any of that. Just have a cold shower, mm -hmm. wrap yourself in a towel, and then get back into bed, preferably slightly damp, <laughs> okay. a little bit cold and wet. And then if you can, open a window yeah. or put a fan on yourself. Just sort of like treat yourself like the ice cube tray <laughs> in your freezer yeah. and then try and get a bit more sleep. Yeah. And I find then the second time you wake up because you're already clean, yeah. you're a little more fresh, you've had a chance to kind of shower those those thoughts off um and I find it really helps that you're more ready for coffee then yeah that is great I have to be cold when I'm hungover yeah, yeah. right it's really important to be cold yeah absolutely um and we are currently recording this during a bit of a Christmas period so I'm not feeling 100% I'm going to confess to you this morning <laughs> um and yeah so what is your what I've had a pastry for breakfast what do you do after that what do you eat what do you drink um, I think like a nice soft carb mm. is always helpful, a potato, <laughs> like the dream situation is you've had a dinner party and there's mashed potatoes oh, left. Yeah. That would be the dream. Yeah. And maybe make like a sort of not totally traditional bubble and squeak out of whatever you've got around. Oh yeah, that's great. That's good. Are you a diet coke? Did you, you had a, 
you diet coke person Ooh, i i don't drink diet coke because it looks like it should kill you <laughs> it, it looks like um it looks like a potion in a fairy tale yeah like if you just saw a glass of diet coke and you didn't know that you enjoyed the taste of diet mm-hmm. coke wouldn't you be like don't do that Maybe it looks so dangerous. <laughs> Maybe talking to you is going to be the final thing that breaks my severe addiction. So thank you. So this is the thing. It goes two ways. I have a lot of friends mm. who are big Dyke DC heads. Yeah. Obsessed. Yeah. yeah, it's not good. How many cans are you on a day? <laughs> I don't like to go more than two. Okay. Yeah. okay. I think that's all right. <laughs> know your limit. Absolutely. <laughs> know your limit. We're going back to your last piece of advice. And we'll be back with more from Monica after this. Delighted to say I'm still here with Monica and we're only halfway through good advice. So let's go with number four, please. Number four is when writing, make peace with the bad version. Okay. Tell me about this. Tell for any aspiring writers out there. I think um, I, I think it's really important not to expect your first draft to be ready. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I'm not good at taking this advice myself, but when I when I do take it, I get better work done because you just power through yeah. the first draft or the first couple of drafts even, um, and know, you know that you have the shape of what you're looking for, but maybe it's not quite there yet. And that just speeds things up so much more than sitting at, in front of your computer, you know, bonking one key at yeah. a time getting two sentences out over an hour, if you just made peace with the bad version, you could get multiple paragraphs done. And then first of all, it's never as bad as you think. Mm-hmm. And second of all, you can't fix what's not there. Right. If you just have a blank page, there's nothing you can do with it. If you have a page full of your dumbest crap, you can turn it into less dumb crap. Yeah, that is true. And how does that work for you? Do you have like a favorite stage of writing? Are you like, I love draft three because it's coming or, you know, is there a stage for you where you're like, it's happening? I like, so I'm a big outline person. Mm-hmm. Um, in TV, you always start with an outline. Mm-hmm. And once you have a good outline, I really do believe that the writing part becomes the pleasure because the hard part is the plotting and the story and making sure that you have something that's going to come together well. And then the pleasure is like funny little jokes for the characters and figuring out what their personal tics are. And that stuff you can do with a real sense of freedom and abandon if you know that the story that you've come up with for these people is going to work. Mm -hmm. So the best feeling is having cracked the outline and starting in on a scene that you've been excited to write since you were in the boring outline stage yeah. and you're like, oh, I finally got to the dinner party and now I can really go crazy because I know that this this more or less has a structure that will hold. Yeah. And for you, does that come easy? Do the characters talk to in your head or how do you find the characterization as well? I think um, it's a good sign if... That, uh, that you've done enough work with the characters if they're not necessarily talking to you in your head, but it's almost like you know what they're going to say. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of like if you watch something like Friends, you know, a couple of seasons in, even the audience knows pr- more or less what the characters are going to say. And the pleasure comes from knowing these people so well that you're like, oh, I can't believe they put Chandler in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to freak out. <laughs> not Chandler's anxiety, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, and I think... If you've done enough work with your characters pre-sitting down to actually draft, Mm. it sort of feels like that 
once you get at your own outline, it's like, oh, God, I, Amira is going to lose her crap over this, you know, um, and that's that's feels good. Yeah. And can I ask, I love speaking to authors because I love finding out how do you write? Do you sit at your desk? Are you in bed? Late at night? I'm in bed. In bed. Yeah, I'm an in bed writer. Yes. Um, it's It's doing things to my posture, <laughs> I think, and that's fine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's the most comfortable place in my house. I don't know why I wouldn't work from here, given the choice. Any time of day better for you? Um, a dream writing day would be that I wake up at like nine, maybe quarter to nine and then have some breakfast and coffee and then work from like 9.30 to one Mm. and then maybe go to a second location for a little bit more work, go to a coffee shop or have lunch, um, you know, sometimes like go to a, a, like a little wine bar or something, have a glass of wine and a snack at like five and do a little bit more work. Um, but the the biggest chunk is is kind of nine to one. God, that sounds like such a nice day you've just described. I love that. It's a really nice. <laughs> I've been um, I've been filming a TV show for the past two months and I was like, God, I had it good. Yeah. <laughs> and then I go to the wine bar and yeah, I love that. <laughs> so good. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I'm already going to agree with you on this, but I want you to explain it to me. Your fifth piece of advice is? If there's nothing to be done about it, make them some potatoes. (laughs) Okay, good. We've already touched on potatoes. They're very important. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can you please explain why that is so key to you? That advice is inspired by my friend Evany in Toronto. Um, When I told her that my marriage was over, she was like, stay there. I'm coming over with potatoes. And she had kind of gone to the grocery store and picked up, I mean, there was a full meal around it, but these potatoes will live on in my memory forever. Uh, She made like those crushed potatoes. You like parboil them and then smush them down in butter and salt. And they were so delicious. And she made them so expertly while just like listening and talking and joking around. And, you know, there wasn't really anything to be done. Um, You know, the relationship was was really over and needed to be over. And it was devastating and would be for some time, but these potatoes were what she could offer in that moment. And like, obviously a listening ear and a lot of great jokes, but, um, but they were just so delicious and so well-made and such a gorgeous act of kind of like immediate friendship and care. Um, and I've, I was very inspired by it. So now when friends are struggling, I'm like, I'm going to come over and crush some potatoes in your house. That's so lovely. And you really get that from your book as well about like people taking care of each other and different people coming into your life and taking care of you at different times. I really love yeah. that. Yeah. Crisis is very humbling that way. Mm. You really need to kind of go limp and accept the support of your support network. That's what they're for, you know? Yeah. And obviously you can't only take support from your support network, which is, I think, something Maggie mm. doesn't necessarily demonstrate for the first maybe two-thirds of the <laughs> book. Um, obviously the dream would be that you you trade off who's making the potatoes and who's eating them. Absolutely. And I really like this advice because I feel like in the UK, the equivalent is like, oh, let's have a cup of tea. And I hate tea. And I'd much rather people <laughs> make me potatoes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to start something today. Yeah. Now everyone knows that listens. They can only bring potatoes. <laughs> Great advice. Mm. And I'm sad because we're at your final piece of good advice, <laughs> which I also love. Tell me. Tell me what it is. Okay, this has been my most life-changing piece of advice personally, and I came up with it, which I can't believe. Perfect. Maybe I didn't. Did I? It feels like it just came to me (laughs) one day. Apologies if I've stolen it from someone. 
but just decide you look like a medium flattering photo of yourself and move on with your life. Yeah. Everyone I know spends so much time so stressed out, especially these days where there's just photos and video everywhere constantly of all of us. And then you see a photo or a video of yourself that you that doesn't really look like how you see yourself in your mm-hmm. head or it's from a funny angle or whatever. And you spend the whole day spiraling about whether or not you look like that and if you look good and if that's the truth that's suddenly been shown to you. Um, and I think you should just decide to take a photo that you see, not like Everyone's seen a photo of themselves where they're like, wow, okay, that is much better than I look. And that's nice. Those are nice to have. But maybe just aim a little more reasonable. Mm -hmm. Take a photo where you think, I look nice there. That that feels like me. And then any bad photo that you see, you can test against this other photo that you already know looks like you. And you don't have to freak out about the bad photo because it's just a moment in time it's an angle. It's a lighting thing. You know what you look like. It's this other photo. Oh, you don't have to worry about it. I love that. I absolutely love that. That's such good advice. Anything that, that anyone can do to think less about what they look like, or and especially to worry less about what they look like, I think is very helpful. It takes up so much mental space, much too much, I would say. Yeah. And I have to say, I know I've mentioned this piece before, but it just really stuck with me, the piece that you wrote about spinning. Because to me, that's just like the perfect example. Like you talk about why you went there first and, you know, you thought I have to get hot in quote marks. And then it was about actually you were like, and then I didn't eat less potatoes, but I did carry on spinning. And and then I just felt really good and nothing really happened to your body. And and that was the end of the piece. And I was like, yeah, that is perfect. That is so great. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I just think centering how we look all the time is not good for us. No. And we're so encouraged to do it in particular by you know, this is a very facile thing to say, but like having Instagram or being on TikTok or whatever. And it's, you know, we're encouraged to think someone's looking at us all the time. Um, And even if they are, I think it's just better to decide for you how you feel (laughs) about what you look like. Kind of goes back to your first piece of advice, right? Nothing is personal. I think people aren't Mm. thinking about you as much as you think they're thinking about you. Yeah, they're like, when have you ever left a party and been like, oh, the host of that party was looking bloated? (laughs) No one thinks like that. If you think like that, you're a complete jerk. Um, So I think, you know, give yourself the same grace that you extend to other people. Perfect. Absolutely. And uh, we are going to kind of return to (laughs) the way people look. We're going to talk about your worst piece of advice, a piece that you are so happy that you ignored. Explain what that is. Okay, I... Wanted a fringe forever and every hairstylist I had from like age 10 to 20 said, oh, you can't have a fringe because you have a round (laughs) face. It won't be flattering, basically. And then a friend of mine at university, I told her this and she was like, can I swear? Yeah, go. (laughs) She was like, fuck that. I'm going to cut you one right now. And I was like, I don't know about that. (laughs) But then she did it. This was like my friend Laurel, who's this like tornado of a person. Uh, meeting her was really inspiring to me. She just like really lives how she wants to live. Um, and she was like, I cut my own fringe all the time. I'm doing yours now. And then she just did it. And I've had a fringe since. It's been like 14 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want you to think I'm obsessing over how you look, but it is a great fringe. Thank you so much. I don't cut it myself anymore. <laughs> yeah. That that was a different period. And it didn't quite, it wasn't as strong. It went through a lot of phases, I would say. Right. Um, cause Laurel lives in California. So she was only able to do it for so long and then <laughs> it was left in my much less capable hands. Sure. Um, 
But I just don't understand these hairstylists out here deciding for someone else what is and isn't quote unquote flattering mm. for their face. I feel like that is any woman that grew up in the 90s and early noughties will have heard those conversations. This is what yes. shape your face is and this is what you should do with the hair on your head. Yeah. 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 I actually think a fringe looks great on a round face, not just mine. <laughs> just in general. Yeah. Do what you want with your hair. Yeah. yeah. Monica, I have absolutely loved talking to you. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed listening to Monica, do go and get her book, Really Good Actually. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today for another Top Draw Grazia Life Advice. If you know someone who also shows how much they care via the medium of potatoes, please share and recommend this episode to them. Also, go and get Monica's book. I promise you, I absolutely loved it. Our guest next time is Angela Griffin from Waterloo Road, Coronation Street, Radio 2 and so much else besides. See you then. Take care. Bye for now.